I think the reason that, you know, people outside of the industry are so in love with this space is because they can participate. So if I go and see a movie and I'm not in the industry, well, guess what? My dollars are part of the dollars that are being reported on. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Chad Knurk, analyst here at Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Stepping in for host Rebecca Polly this week, who is literally on a plane headed for Miami and show East as we record. I'm joined today by Sean Robbins, chief analyst at Box Office Pro, and Russ Fisher of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. Russ, Sean, great to be here with you. Yeah, you too. Yeah, likewise. This is actually the 200th episode of the Box Office Podcast. And oh, ironically, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't realize. Ironically, neither Daniel or Rebecca are here in the new segment to celebrate with us. Hey, I was there on day one. I was <laughs> nice. <laughs> awesome. I was doing your job today. I, I was I, I was hosting at that point. And man, it's weird to think about that just because like we, Sean probably knows this, Chad, you may or may not. I mean, we started putting this together just before COVID hit. Yeah. And it was a whole thing of like, like, how are we going to do this and why, what are our goals and whatnot? And then COVID hit and kind of obviously changed everything and in a way created a principle around which we organized the podcast for the first year easily. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy to think about how bizarre those days were. Yeah. Mounting a podcast is no easy task. So congrats, Russ. Congrats to Daniel and Rebecca on 200 and the whole team. Daniel will be here this week in our feature segment where we'll be hearing from Paul DeGarbedian, the senior media analyst at Comscore, who is receiving the Al Shapiro Distinguished Service Award at Show East this week. Before we take a look at the news and the weekend box office, a word from our sponsor this week, Cineonic. This episode of the Box Office Podcast is sponsored by Cineonic, a barco company. A pioneer celebrated for its breakthrough cinema laser projection, captivating audiences with breathtaking visuals. With more than 100,000 projectors installed, Cineonic is trusted by exhibitors worldwide to deliver high-quality experiences that keep their customers coming back for more. From the booth and the screen to the moviegoer, Cineonic's all-laser portfolio offers an elevated, efficient, and eco-friendly solution for every screen. Ready to go laser? Contact an expert today at Cineonic.com. That's C-I-N-I-O-N-I-C.com. Next week, Rebecca will be back with a full recap and coverage of Show East. Not much news this week, but we have been following the SAG after strike and have a few updates there to share. Russ, what's the latest on the strike? Where are we at? Well, a couple of days ago, the SAG AFTRA passed kind of an unfortunate milestone, which is the hundredth day of the strike. But on that anniversary, if you will, on that day, they were able to announce that the Producers Guild had set a return to the bargaining table and official negotiations are set to begin again uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, October 24th. That's tomorrow as we record this, which means two days ago as you listen to it. So, you know, kind of notoriously, the last time they sat down, things broke down in a relatively public and large-scale way. We discussed that with Netflix's Ted Sarandos and other people on the producers and streaming side reacting negatively to some of the proposals put forth by SAG-AFTRA. We'll see how things go this time. We know that they've kind of tweaked some of their bargaining points, but we don't have all of those in front of us yet. We don't know everything that they're going to take to the table. So we're just as interested as everyone else to see how this is going to go. At the same time, we've seen, you know, weird kind of gossip outlet reportings of supposed lack of harmony within the ranks at SAG with 
people pushing the union to get everyone back to work, all of which, frankly, seems a little bit like planted stories designed to try to kind of weaken resolve. So any of those things that you see that don't come officially from SAG-AFTRA or for their bargaining team or the captains there, I wouldn't put a whole lot of faith in. Let's see where things go this week. Hopefully, you know, by the time you listen to this on Thursday, either there will be good news or they will be still at the table, which I would also take as good news. Yeah, a lot of ground to make up there, but stay tuned to the podcast and we will continue that coverage until the strike is resolved, which hopefully is sooner rather than later. At the box office last week, Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour debuted two weeks ago at $92.8 million to become the top concert film of all time after opening weekend. And in its second frame, Eras declined 67% with $31 million, but still re- repeated that first place. Concert films have previously come in at number one, but this is actually the first time a concert film has been number one two weekends in a row. Sean, I wanted to get your thoughts there on this holdover for Taylor Swift. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, you know, it's, we kind of look at that initial opening weekend and it just blew away every concert movie that, that's come before it. And combine that with Taylor's fan base, I think there was a natural assumption it would it would fall off a little sharply, but maybe more akin to like a Marvel movie or just a general, you know, big franchise movie. And that's, that's what happened. Uh, it, this is still just a huge result. I mean, $31 million in its second weekend is more or less equal to what the previous record was for... Miley Cyrus and Justin Bieber in their first weekends over a decade ago. So it's kind of hard to find many more adjectives just to say how big this is, how important it is for theaters and and for AMC to be thinking outside the box, for Taylor Swift to be thinking outside the box. This is a movie that's, that's certainly helped fill some gaps on the calendar that came about as a result of of the strike, you know, that, that Russ was just talking about a few minutes ago. We, we lost Dune, we lost Ghostbusters, we lost Craven the Hunter within the last few months, in large part because those films weren't be able going to finish production and or just couldn't be promoted. So here we are, Taylor Swift uh, bringing the blockbuster to, to help replace at least one of those. And this is an interesting week because with the top two, we have films that are being released somewhat untraditionally. In second place with a $23 million start, director Martin Scorsese's epic crime saga, Killers of the Flower Moon, an Apple original film, but distributed by Paramount. Sean, I'm curious about this with Taylor Swift's higher base price of $19.89. Is there a possibility that Killers of the Flower Moon actually took in more tickets? You know, I think it's 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 very tricky to figure out what the average price is for any movie, but we at least kind of know where hers is, at least a sort of a baseline. And we know that Flower Moon drew a predominantly adult audience, which means it's its average ticket price is is probably a little bit higher than the, the national average of $11 from the past year or so. I would say it was very close. You know, maybe you're, you're talking a very small margin for error. Taylor certainly had a lot of pre-sales, but Flower Moon certainly had a lot more walk-up business over the weekend as those audiences showed up. So I would say, you know, if it's probably almost too close to call between yeah. uh, between the two. And what are your thoughts here on the first of two major releases from Apple going theatrical? I think this is important in a lot of ways because we have this, we have Napoleon in November. Apple also has Argyle from Matthew Vaughn, that being distributed through Universal early next year. So this is kind of the start of a wave of Apple and, and and streamers in general testing the waters with these these major distribution models going exclusively to theaters. Certainly not the first by any means, but I think certainly one of the most high profile. And it speaks to where most of these companies are putting their mindset in terms of realizing how important that that model is. The theatrical window is is crucial, especially for big budget films like Flower Moon. Eventually it'll be on streaming. It'll boost their library content. But at the end of the day, you know, as we've talked about all of us on on this podcast over the years, how important that model is to kickstart your revenue stream in, in theaters with this kind of a, a project. It really speaks volume, I think, to Apple embracing both sides and trying to figure out how they're going to make this work and balance it out going forward. Yeah, because we've seen Netflix do this in the past, but this is a little different because 
Apple's actually going through a major distributor like Paramount, where Netflix usually takes that on themselves. And this fall, they're releasing a lot of films to brief theatrical runs before heading to streaming. I think last time I counted, there were at least five. Bradley Cooper's Maestro, uh, David Fincher's The Killer, the Diana Nyad biopic, Todd Haynes. Yeah, yeah. Todd Haynes, May, December. And then there's the uh, Julie Roberts, Ethan Hawke film, Leave the World Behind. So Netflix has been a little cagey about how long those theatrical releases are going to be. Like I said, it's not a new strategy. Of course, we'd love to see all of those films have robust theatrical windows. But Sean, I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Does a limited time only help drive urgency to see it in theaters or with Netflix in mind, does it actually do the opposite? Give some noteworthiness to a streaming film so subscribers will watch it there. That's a great question. I I mean, I think it depends on the film. At the end of the day, I've always been a firm believer that selling something as a limited time only just the, the obvious intent there is to pitch it as an event that can't be missed. You have to go see this as soon as you can. That's what everybody's talking about. You don't want to miss out on the conversation. That's that's kind of the marketing brain behind all of that. I think that can work in a lot of cases. I, I think especially with Glass Onion last year, we saw strong attendance numbers in theaters for its limited engagements. And you know, one wonders how big of a box office hit that sequel really could have been under normal circumstances. I think there may be some films that it'll be harder to, to sell that with, but you know, that's part of, I think that's just part of the era we're in now is and that's where Netflix is thinking as well is which movies can we do that with every streamer is doing that and which ones, you know, are there just going to be limitations in terms of how much audience will come out in this day and age? I mean, you have to wonder about the degree to which some of these deals, especially on the Apple side, are made with an insistence of theatrical exhibition. You know, after The Irishman, how intent was Martin Scorsese on having a real theatrical distribution for Killers of the Flower Moon? Same with David Fincher and The Killer. His last movie, Mank, was on Netflix, and it kind of disappeared. You know, Ridley Scott is not a guy whose movies go to streaming only. You know, he's a big canvas type of filmmaker uh, nine times out of ten of course he gets he always makes his canvas bigger on home video he always does a director's cut and so that's great for streaming but yeah i wonder about the deal making here i also see with netflix netflix seems to play a little more crassly towards the idea of awards season which is where bradley cooper's maestro comes in you know you don't make a movie like that without thinking about oscars and to get oscars it's got to be in theaters but i mean i i tend to believe along the lines of Netflix is using these as essentially big ad campaigns to get subscribers. But Netflix certainly wants the prestige of awards. And the irony here is I think that Paramount is in a much better position to actually take those awards this year. Mm -hmm. Um, So curious to see how that all works out for them. Yeah, that's a really good point. And yeah, going back to Killers of the Flower Moon, I think, you know, A minus cinema score, I think it's going to find its place among Scorsese's greatest work. Every aspect of it is really compelling. It's well done. It's kind of what we expect from him. And yet it is another masterpiece. And the story really weaves together this really maddening tapestry of this forgotten chapter of American history. Sean, did you have a chance to see it? I did. I enjoyed it. I, this is one I, I really wanted to make sure that it's, I planned out way in advance because I once I heard about the three and a half hour runtime, I was like, yeah, so this is going to be a Saturday morning for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, my wife and I saw an IMAX, just, you know, everything you said, Chad, I think it's another one of his great works. I could critique certain things, but I'm not Martin Scorsese. He's He's forgotten more than I'll ever learn about filmmaking. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to hear what I might critique about it. But yeah, absolutely. I think it was a great performance by Leo and, and Lily Gladstone. De Niro was great. I think the cinematography was just gorgeous. Like you saw the budget on the screen. And yeah, I'm curious to hear, Russ, your thoughts if you had a chance to see it. Sadly, no, not yet. You know, Parenthood plus 
a four and a half hour time commitment once you take into account like getting there and, and everything else. I'm going to try to catch it this week because I'm dying to see it. I do think that A minus cinema score is really interesting. You know, we always need to, when we talk about cinema score, we always need to discuss the fact that it's like this is really measuring whether or not audiences got what they expected out of a movie. It has nothing to do with whether or not the movie is good. And so that speaks very well of how Killers of the Flower Moon was positioned and where it sits kind of culturally, you know, people knew what they were going in for and seeing that plus the movie's take plus the reporting that, you know, 46% of the attendance was under 35. Those things all add up to, you know, a more positive picture of, you know, the theatrical landscape than some other events have painted over the last couple of years. Now, granted, it's Martin Scorsese. You know, whether or not you love his movies, you know who he is. You've probably got an opinion on Scorsese. You probably have a favorite Scorsese movie, and not everybody can can draw like Scorsese can on that level. So, you know, maybe an edge case in some ways. But I do think those numbers are interesting and have a very positive, you know, reflection of what's going on right now. Yeah. And what I loved about about it was Scorsese's use of his own cultural identity the gangster kind of focus film that we think of him for in order to make this larger statement. And at a certain point, it moves from entertainment to you as an audience member kind of feeling complicit in the character's actions. So it's a really powerful piece of filmmaking. And that's the thing, you know, that he's been doing going back a long, long time. I mean, that's kind of a cornerstone of Goodfellas, right? The notion that... You know, the things that Henry Hill wants are the same things that we as audience members at least want to see. And so seeing his his fall and what happens to him as a result of those actions that we wanted to see certainly implies a complicity in us as well. It's like, oh, we love seeing gangsters do this stuff, but like, eh, it's not. You know, I think it's very, I think there's a stereotype in a way of Scorsese as kind of someone who endorses, you know, mob figures or something because he has portrayed a number of those people on screen. And it's like, no, that's nothing could be further from the truth. Mm, Yeah. And it's a real focal point here that he's able to subvert that and almost subvert the Western genre. It opened overseas to 21 million, so 47% overseas. And in number three, we have The Exorcist Believer at 5.6 million. Number four, Paw Patrol, The Mighty Movie at 4.4 million. And then rounding out the top five, Disney's re-release of the 1993 The Nightmare Before Christmas, which brought in 4.1 million. Bumping Saw X from that fifth spot on the chart. That's a pretty solid weekend compared to some of the recent re-releases Disney put out a 30th anniversary re-release of Hocus Pocus, which I think saw 1.6 million. And then this summer, Jurassic Park's 30th anniversary re-release earlier this year, which I think also was 1.6 million. And Nightmare Before Christmas was on 1,650 screens. So that's considerably less than Saw X at 2,756. Sean may agree with this. I feel like Nightmare kind of covers a couple of quadrants. You know, you get horror fans, but you get families. You get people who are maybe taking their kids to see the movie for the first time. And so that's, uh, you know, the timing of it is obviously good, but I think the movie is good. The movie is really held up culturally, which is not to say that like Jurassic Park is not or something, but Nightmare Before Christmas hasn't really been exhausted in a way. You know, it can still feel like kind of an event. And so I wonder about the degree to which that plays into those numbers. It's interesting that that and Hocus Pocus, I think, in recent years have have seen something of a renaissance in terms of crossing over to the new generation. Like you mentioned Jurassic Park, that was obviously a huge hit when it initially came out. Nightmare and Hocus Pocus, especially Hocus Pocus, a little bit more low key. It, it mm. certain, neither of them pulled, you know, the kinds of numbers Jurassic Park did in the, in the early '90s. But I think over time they've elevated from cult classics to legitimate classics, and maybe the absence of of Halloween movies kind of helps to that degree as well. But I think exactly what you said. It's it's really generationally and culturally not just endured, but I think it's being passed down now, especially with 
Halloween itself seems to be, you know, increasingly more popular as a as a holiday season and not just a one day holiday. Yeah, it's Halloween is different now than it was twenty years ago. Oh yeah, right, it's right. completely different. It's bigger, like you say, and as you know, perhaps represented by Home Depot selling twelve or sixteen <laughs> foot skeletons, whatever it was. That was not. A I thing. almost bought one of those. I'm not going to lie. Oh, I get it. Yeah, I, if I had any place to store it, uh, yeah, other than right. like having it awkwardly crouched in my basement for 11 months out of the year uh, I would consider it as well but yeah it's yeah there is a, a different thing hocus pocus is an interesting point because that movie I feel like unless you were in a very specific demo at the time you probably didn't see or even really think about hocus pocus but then kids grew up with it on video and they're not kids anymore and they have families and I was frank a few years ago like I was frankly surprised by hocus pocus kind of showing up as this thing that had a real cultural force because I had just I'd never even considered that movie to be perfectly honest and it's exactly <laughs> what you say like it's built into something that is much more than it was at the time it came out Speaking of Halloween and the spooky season this weekend's wide release from Universal, Five Nights at Freddy's, is a day and date title, but we have heard from Universal it's going to be on 3,500 plus screens. So one more Halloween spooky season release in the box office. Sean, what are your thoughts on this? What's the box office looking like for this title? Yeah, this is one I've had kind of on my radar for a long time just because I'm not hardcore, but sort of tangentially tied into or aware of the gaming community around it. My nephew is a huge fan of it. He has been for years. So it, I've kind of been aware that there is a very fervent, you know, loyal following for, for it. And I think that's kind of played into my bullish expectations for the movie, especially it being from Blumhouse and Universal, who just have this incredible reputation with horror films. And the fact that it's PG-13, it's going to draw in, it can or it can sell tickets to that younger audience that wouldn't normally come out to an R-rated film like you know we usually see from Blumhouse. And pre-sales started out really strong. I think the one drawback initially, though, was that I don't, I'm not sure Exhibition realized how big the fan base was. And it wasn't given a lot of showtimes. It wasn't given much, if any, premium screen options. So I think that kind of held back some initial forecasts. But now here we are. You know, this will be coming out. This podcast comes out on Thursday when previews will be launching. I really think this could come very close to a new high watermark for Blumhouse openings, which, you know, the top two are the Halloween revival, I should say, the 2018 one. That one made $76 million on opening weekend. And the next highest is Paranormal Activity 3 from 2011, which was about $52.6 million. I have a very strong feeling Freddy's could, could come close to those top two, just with what we've seen buzz-wise. And that's despite the hybrid release. And that's, that's one of the big X factors is how many people will opt to watch it at home. My gut feeling is given Peacock's subscriber base not being comparable to the bigger ones out there that the impact will be minimal, but you know, we'll see. It's, it's one of those variables that we have to weigh. Yeah. Is that a strategy that can fit certain films like this or perhaps the horror genre in general? You know, I think we're seeing less of it. So I think even studios realize that, you know, more often than not, it's a no, but in this case, you know, I think the goal is, it's hard to say, to be honest. I think it works for horror because horror is horror has really proven itself to be such a theatrical draw and a very a mainstay with audiences, whether it's you know casual followers or you know diehard fans of, of the genre itself. And it plays into the communal experience. You know, you want to go see this with your friends or your family, not just this, but other horror films. It's part of sitting in a dark room. It's experiencing the surprises and the jump scares and everything together, the, the comedy. It kind of touches into everything that I think makes going to the movies what going to the movies is. But, you know, we've only really seen this, interestingly, post-COVID from Universal and, and Blumhouse with the, to the two Halloween sequels over the past couple of years. And unfortunately, those divided audiences to begin with. So I don't think we really have a good sample size to know how much they were impacted because they were front loaded. You could blame that on streaming. You could blame that on the word of mouth, maybe both with Freddy's. You know, we'll see. We don't really know what the reviews are going to be like on this or how front loaded it'll be by fans. So it's kind of another experiment in a lot of ways. They haven't done press screenings of yeah. Freddy's, <laughs> um, which is, you know, traditionally 
tells you that a movie is bad, but it's the thing with Freddy's is it's weird. Like I did not play these games, but like you say, there's like a younger millennial and then zoomer audience for whom Freddy's is huge. And it's like, is it just the thing that like maybe reviews are actually going to hurt that more because it's more important that the movie plays to that audience than anything else? And frankly, like the story of Freddy's is a little bit ridiculous and nonsensical, (laughs) even for a horror movie. So it's kind of like, why subject the movie to reviews from, you know, critics that do not know what that is and don't care. Why not just wait and let the audience see it? That's a good point. Yeah, and I think I think you're onto something there. I, I th- you know, this might be one of those examples we talk about a, a review proof movie, and maybe the the cheesiness and just the the absurdity of the entire concept might actually help it. Like this, just might be this might be the movie critics hate, but the people it's made for might end up loving it. And, you know, clearly they're, they're putting it out on Halloween weekend. So they're, they're really playing into the synergy of all of this almost pitch perfect. There actually is a press screening near me. So I'm going to try to go to that and, and see what that's like. But Rebecca said the same, that, that there weren't any around her. So yeah, we'll see. When is that screening? Is it like Wednesday night? Yeah. It's like two days before (laughs) the release. Right before the embargo. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Our thanks to Russ and Sean for joining us this week. Now in our feature segment, Daniel Luria sits down with Comscore Senior Media Analyst Paul DeGarbedian, the recipient of this week's show East Al Shapiro Distinguished Service Award. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast with an old friend of the industry and an old friend of Box Office who's been uh, a part of our publication on and off. You've seen his name in our masthead, uh, you know, through our history. We've got the only Paul Dergarabedian Senior Media Analyst over at Comscore and the honoree at this year's show East of the Al Shapiro Distinguished Service Award. Paul, welcome to the Box Office Podcast. Daniel Loria, it's so so great to be here. It's such an honor. Thank you so much. Well, this is a, a conversation that I'm really glad we get to have because you're in the beat th- that we're in. And you're in a similar beat that we're in in the sense that I think a lot of our colleagues have a either a industry first role working for a vendor like you do over at Comscore, like we do here at the box office company, or they might work a little bit more on a media role, like our colleagues over at Variety, Deadline, Hollywood Reporter, The Wrap, et cetera. They work for a publication that has a media background as their primary interest. We have a similar position here where we kind of walk both lines. There is the media side of what we do. And there is also the industry part of what we do working for a parent company that's a vendor in this space. So it's a unique perspective that you have, and I can't wait to get started. So let's start right at the beginning. When did you first start working in the cinema space? Yeah, I was a bit of a late bloomer. I didn't even start in the film industry until 1993 when I was, uh, 32 years old. So I've been in the game 30 years and uh, I literally got into it really because I loved numbers and my my father was a rocket scientist and a mathematician. Although I was terrible at math, Daniel, in high school, terrible at math. But it really, for me, it's just a love of movies first and foremost. I've told the story many times. I won't go into it at too much length here, but seeing 2001 A Space Odyssey at the Cinerama Dome when I was about seven years old, that was the moment. You know, that's what everybody has that moment when movies somehow affected their life uh, or profoundly changed their life. And so I just fell in love with the cinema experience at that point. And I really got into this by just seeing the the charts in the LA Times and uh, the box office charts Back in the 90s, I was fascinated by all that. Wound up getting a a job back in March. March 3rd of 93 is when I first started at Exhibitor Exhibitor Relations Company. You know, I've just been doing it ever since. I I was part of Hollywood.com for a while. And then I started my own company, Media by Numbers. And then I moved over to Rentrack about 10 years ago. And now, you know, Rentrack is part of 
Comscore. So I'm now part of Comscore. So 10 years there. But it was just the love of movies. And you know, Daniel, I'm sure you're the same way. If you have an anal if you're an analytical thinker, but you're also a emotional person or you have an emotional connection to art, our world is the perfect world in which you can combine the numbers and the emotional connection to the art that is the art of filmmaking and, and filmmakers that we all love. And uh, that's really where it comes from. We're very fortunate that we're not tracking widgets because widgets are, you know, like a, like a paperweight or something. If we were tracking paperweight sales, I don't think it would be the same thing, not even close to what we get to do, which is talk about movies, but also put it in the context of how are they doing financially? How much do they earn? And you and I and, and all, all of us in this space, we, and I think before we even start recording, you mentioned we are in a really, we're in a particular, uh, we have a particular responsibility to not only provide a, you know, commentary that is, you know, unbiased, that is fact-based, but also not to jump on the bandwagon of, let's say, trashing the industry or trashing individual films just for the sake of doing that. We are in a position where I personally feel a very profound responsibility to meld the factual with a, you know, a commentary that is hopefully insightful and also without a sort of clickbait mentality, like just trying to get a headline or doing something like that. So that's really important to me. And movie theaters to me are just I mean, that's my favorite place in the world. And I, I've loved going to movie theaters forever. You know, the Al Shapiro Award, I'm so honored to even be considered for it and to, and to be getting this award at Show East uh, in late October is a total honor. And I, I couldn't, I wouldn't even be honored if it wasn't for everything that the theater owners were doing in the studios. You know, I'm just there to be a support system and also give factual uh, a, a factual basis for the commentary. I think it's so important to contextualize performance. And that's essentially what we do. I think one of the misunderstandings when we talk about box office analysis is that we're, you know, anointing hits and decrying misses and, and being in a position of an absurd puppet master or basically kingmakers, which none of us that do this are in that position. We're only the Monday morning quarterback, basically. We're coming in on Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, looking at performance over a weekend and contextualizing that performance, saying, hey, this is how it's done in the context of a market. That's gotten a little bit tricky, I think, in recent years as the whole concept of tracking box office and box office analysis went from what it had always been in publications like, like Box Office or Film Journal International of informing colleagues within the industry it's had more of a consumer-facing bent recently. It's a little yes. bit like fantasy football these days, which is a little <laughs> bit weird to me because we're talking about how much money movies earn. In my opinion, that's the most boring conversation to have about a movie <laughs> at any point. Like when, I, when I'm when i at the Thanksgiving table with my relatives, I don't talk to them about how much dollars and cents the movies make. I talk about the movies themselves. We do something from a professional perspective that's taken more of a consumer bent these days. There it's are so true. Reddit boards, message boards. How do you figure that? When did that happen? When did that start changing professionally? Well, you know, that's a great question because, yeah, because I'm old enough to know that when the trade press was reporting numbers, it was more like a region would be reported or here, here's what happened in the Northeast or at these theaters in New York, let's say, or in Los Angeles. And it was very much inside baseball type of thing. And I think it was really the like 82, 83, 84 when the trade papers actually put an entire top 10, top 20, then top 50 list of box office. And the LA Times, of course, being a company town newspaper, they were running the box office fairly early on. I don't know where that originated, where it was just mainstream press reporting on it. But I think the reason that the you know people outside of the industry are so in love with this space is because they can participate. So if I go and see a movie and I'm not in the industry, well, guess what? My dollars are part of the dollars that are being reported on. So people have a vested interest. And again, left brain, right brain, it's like we're, again, if it was just reporting on the sales of whatever it is, some good, you know, just some hard good, that's not as exciting as movies. So 
you know, whenever I, like you, when I talk to family, about, and I have a lot of family members in the business, filmmakers and the like, mostly filmmakers, producers, directors, and writers, and we always kind of combine both because it's fun to talk about the numbers when you contextualize it, especially for people outside of industry. If they say, well, how did that movie do? That can mean a lot of different things. Well, how did it do critically? How did it do financially? And then a lot of times outside of the industry, I think there's a thought that if a movie doesn't quote unquote do well at the box office, that it's not a good movie. And being box office people, I always say, I met Sidney Pollack, the great director, years ago, probably 25 years ago at some industry event. And I went up to him and I, I go, I apologize for monetizing your art or putting a number on your art, but it's not about that. It's it's that I love your movies. I love you as a, as a filmmaker. And he was totally cool about it. And look, most great filmmakers, or at least filmmakers working today, have a great understanding of the business and box office. So it's show business, right? It's not just the show. It's also a business. But we, we walk that fine line when we're making our uh, comments. And you have to be very kind of careful with what you say. As long, but I feel like as long as it's factual and it makes sense, then you're pretty much covered. And I think also today, as differentiated from 15 or 20 years ago, there's so many people talking. And now with social media, there's people not even in the industry talking constantly about box office and movies that now I'm not like singled out by a studio for saying something that they perhaps didn't like. Now that, by the way, that used to happen. You know, when you're kind <laughs> Quite of a, bit, if I remember. a lot yeah. where it's like, what did you say about our movie? Or you better, you know, that uh, we don't agree with that or whatever it may be. And it was always a, in a very professional way. But now there's so many voices out there. It's like, who's going to pick on something I might say? And I think that's a, a big distinction in in what we're trying to to sort of solidify as what a role like a box office analyst brings to the industry. It's not really a job unless you're speaking to a group of people that have a stake in what you have to say. In When we talk about a box office analyst, there might be how many of these positions out there, Paul? As a job, 50 worldwide right now? It's a right very, now. very small community. That's for Very sure. small community. And what I love about the internet, and we've seen it with film criticism, is that social media and YouTube and TikTok have democratized the number of voices that can come in and participate. But of course, anytime you're talking about media, you have to come at it from a perspective of who your intended audience is. From a consumer level, I completely understand the rise of social media critics, of online critics. You saw that in your lifetime. I did as well, how legacy publications were the only folks that had access to early screenings, the only folks that had access in sharing what a movie was like. They were tastemakers. Once the internet comes, that wall crumbles down because and you're YouTube, talking to consumers. Daniel, you're, exa- you're, you're hitting on something very unique and important that's happened because of, especially, I watch a lot of YouTube and there are now political analysts, uh, music journalists, art critics, you name it, uh, stock analysts from all walks of life. Now, some are professionally affiliated and others are just really smart people who know about music and architecture and movies and all that kind of, and finance. And it really has democratized the situation. Now, what you have to hope though is, is that the cream rises to the top, that if you have something great to say, you'll be asked to say it again and again, or come back to talk about different things. And the beauty of what we do, Daniel, is that every week it's a brand new product, meaning, and I don't call movies product, but I'm saying as analogous to other businesses where you might have the same model of car or the same brand for seven years straight, you're remarketing the same thing over and over again, basically. And that's not a slam, but with movies, it's like a, you wipe the, you know, erase the chalkboard, start again on every Thursday night if there's previews and Friday and every movie is unique. And that's what make makes what we do. And for me, what, what I do so exciting because it's never boring always changing. And every weekend is a new, has a new trajectory, a new pathology, a new analysis attached to it. So 
It's really. I always say it here when it comes to box office analysis: prior performance never dictates future results. That's. I think that's the golden rule that we have to approach this. It helps us set benchmarks. It helps us contextualize, right? But it's never something that we can come in with with an expectation or a guarantee. I mean, could anyone have predicted Barbenheimer based on something that happened before? No, We, we had no reference point for that. That was a totally unique situation. And again, that's where I think probably people who may not have been either interested in movies or box office suddenly were like, wow, this is the number one story. And by the way, it's always a positive story generally when it comes to movies, when it's a positive thing like big box office or a cultural phenomenon. And uh, it's again, the Barbenheimer phenomenon proves how unpredictable and unique this business is. Because if you had asked you, Daniel, or me at the beginning of the year, you know, could you have predicted Barbenheimer? Absolutely not. Now, when oh, they no set way. those two films on the same date, that kind of set that into motion. But before even those dates were set, if you said Barbie and Oppenheimer are coming out in the summer of uh, 2023 and there was no release date set, and you said, well, there's going to be this thing called Barbenheimer. Never. You would have never. There, like you said, the past is no reference for the future necessarily, although now everyone's trying to say like, you know, when Saw and Paw Patrol opens, it's going to be Saw Patrol. And, and now everyone's <laughs> trying to find these ways to, to ma- and I didn't invent that, ways to mash up movie titles and that kind of thing. One of the things we, we touched about earlier in the conversation is just how much we've seen other media roles in this industry sort of open up and be more inclusive and be more accepting, uh, democratize themselves a little bit more. It's interesting in that even though we've had a big push towards a B2C engagement, a consumer-oriented engagement, a fan-oriented engagement of box office analysis and box office numbers, we really haven't seen that sprout up like we've seen in other fo- in other areas. Now, some folks do have that approach. And I, I'm sure like ourselves, we do get emails here from people starting out saying, hey, how can I make this my job? How can I get started in this? And I always try to make that distinction in that it has to be for an audience. The difference between analysis and bar trivia is who you're <laughs> speaking to and who you're delivering <laughs> insights to. And I unfortunately, I think a, a lot of bad box office writing, and there is so much bad box office writing out there, is bar trivia. It's people that want to know what the number three second weekend on the, th- the third weekend of July is going to be. Just things that, that really don't give any actionable insight for stakeholders within this industry. And you know who that's the stakeholders a, are. That's it's absolutely. vendors, it's exhibitors, it's mom and pop concession suppliers. That's who our audience is. We have no interest in here saying who the top 15 flops are or what the best DC superhero is. That's not the business we're in. And I think that's maybe a big division point between the hobbyist aspect of this and maybe the more professional leaning aspect of this. From your perspective, what would your advice be to folks that want to get in on this? Well, like like you said earlier, it's a very small community and it's really fun for people to kind of delve into this and, and dive into the numbers. And look, people do the same thing with sports. All I mean, the sports Talk about the analysis in real time and how addicted people are to the sports stats, whether it be baseball, football, whatever the sport is, bowling, whatever it is. But that doesn't mean everyone can play those sports or make a living at it. So, I th- and I do the same thing. I, I I play a little bit of guitar and I love cars and all this stuff, but I'm not in those industries. I can only, as a fan, say, hey, I think they should design this guitar like this or that this car should have this kind of, I don't like this feature on this automobile or whatever, or advising other industries what they should do because I'm a huge fan. Being a fan doesn't make you an expert, but it can make you a very, at least well-informed person enough to have a, a fun conversation. Now, if you're not interested in making a living at it, the democratization, as you said, you could go on YouTube and post videos every day about box office, about movies, uh, there's, but there are people online who have huge followings who are not necessarily counted as professionals in the industry. And I don't look at it like an elitist thing, like I'm better than anybody else or anything. It's just if, but if somebody's asked me, should you go into this business as a, to make a living? Well, you could certainly try. And for me, I never went into it with that intent. It's just, it was something I was interested in. I wound up with a mentor way back in the day who helped me get my footing. And then I had a lot of help along the way 
And I want to say just in reference to the Al Shapiro Distinguished Service Award, which I'm so honored to receive at Show East this year from the Sunshines, which I'm so honored that I wouldn't be receiving that award if it wasn't for what everybody else was doing. It was the movie theaters and the studios creating the movies that go in the movie theaters and the theater managers and the distribution and marketing folks at studios and the people on the ground level or, you know, on the on the really at the theater level doing their thing. I wouldn't have anything to talk about and nothing to be honored for if it wasn't for that community. So it really I owe it all to everybody else. All I did was just never stop. I'm just tenacious That's my advice to people if they want to get into something, no matter what it is. But I don't have a balance. I kind of work every day, and I'm sure you do too. And every Sunday morning since 95, I started in 1993, but my old mentor, he made me, not made me, he didn't force me, but he wanted me to start doing the box office numbers and reporting those on Sunday morning. I started doing that in earnest in 1995. And only twice in that time, other than the few months of the pandemic, that summer of 2020, where we weren't reporting anything, but I've really not done the box office duties on Sunday twice in 30 years. And you know better than anybody, right? That like people say, oh, do you get the holidays off? Wait, are you kidding? The last two weeks of the year are among the busiest of all time in theaters. In fact, it's my busiest time. And even what are so-called holiday weekends, as you know, Give us more to do, not less, because you have the, you know, the three day and the four day numbers and all that. I don't want to get too much in the weeds on that, but it's just that, (laughs) that tenacity and you just have to really love it. If you think about how many wide releases in a given year, there might be 110. That's a small, I mean, I'm putting aside the indie films, which are wildly important, but there's so many more of those released every year, some in limited release. But if we're talking about wide releases every year, it's really kind of a bespoke, boutique experience to actually get up, go to the movie theater, much like going to a concert. And Taylor Swift, as we all know, knows better than everyone or anyone how important that communal experience is. And her movie is going to really put a fine point on that. So really just a lot going on. And, you know, certainly there are challenges and headwinds. And this is something, Daniel, you and I always address you know, we can, you can bury your head in the sand, pretend nothing's wrong and just act like everything's positive. So I think tempering our optimism and enthusiasm for the business with the real world impact that the strikes are having, that other situations may have on the industry, you have to look at both sides of that coin, but you also have to be measured, balanced, and really factually correct in your analysis. And the analysis also has to be, I think, contextualized and presented in the right way. What, what we do here when we talk about movies on a box office analysis perspective is quantitative analysis, not qualitative analysis, quantitative analysis. We're not at all, like you mentioned with your with your commentary when you when you ran into Sidney Pollock, we're not saying if a movie is good or bad. I, I probably, like myself, some of my favorite movies I think maybe played in three movie screens. I was, you know, I was just going to say that. Some, right? some of my favorite movies were considered bombs. I mean, going back to my 2001 A Space Odyssey story, people walked out of that movie. It was not a huge box office hit when it came out. It took years for that movie to be appreciated. But yeah, I totally, totally agree with you. And it's 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 such an important distinction to make because sometimes we do get a little bit of heat, you know, in our perspective here in the media of like, hey, your commentary on the financial performance of my film can impact how my film is received. I disagree with that respectfully. Every time I hear that, (laughs) I think uh, your film works at a certain level and its success has absolutely nothing to do with ticket sales. We are merely giving information to stakeholders like vendors, like exhibitors, like studios, so they can make business decisions around your film. The business life of your film is completely, completely separate than the qualitative, the art, the social, the cultural life of your film. And that's true. Although I do think when there are projections put out about an opening weekend and a film vastly underperforms, you know, some, and, and not only that, you take some big franchises that were expected to do so well this summer. And I think by and large, they did. Some of these franchises though, Daniel, are a victim of their own success because then suddenly the bar is raised so high that even if if a movie makes what would for any other film or franchise be considered a home run, knock it out of the park hit for certain films, 
certain characters, iconic film characters that didn't deliver what many had thought they should have in terms of box office. That's a tough one because how do you live up to that? The movies I tend to love are movies that maybe challenge your expectations, are movies that maybe push buttons. Those movies, by definition, shouldn't be judged on their financial performance. Well, I think one of the most uh, useless arguments we can have is, is ranking specialty box office in terms of hits or misses. When we talk about the art house, the least relevant conversation as to where it's supposed to go is the financial conversation. I love it when we get a difficult film that's hard to sell. It's not about, for those films, the currency is the reviews and the buzz. Because if you go into the indie film world expecting to make oodles of cash or have, you can have a breakout hit that has massive profitability. But I just like the fact that the A24s and the focus features and the searchlights of the world and all the great indie distributors are... They go out on a limb for these films. And even though a, theat- a streaming release would be much less expensive to mount, uh, they go for it and put these films in theaters. And that's great. You know, a lot of people thought during the pandemic that indie film was going to go away or just go permanently to streaming. As we've seen, it's not happening. I mean, we have, you know, Wes Anderson out there who's a name that draws people just by his name alone. And then, of course, we have Alexander Payne coming back with the holdovers this fall, which I'm really excited about. So indie film, you're right. There's should be, and I think there is by some like yourself who judge, and we don't really, I don't even want to say judge, analyze these films, not necessarily based on their box office performance, because some of these films open in number, the number 18 spot, right? So they're suddenly marginalized and forgotten about, but they shouldn't be because those are films that could be the best films out there and most challenging. I think another big part to say is that nothing that you nor I nor any other box office analyst professionally says is authoritative in terms of a film's success. You and I, we cover one part of a film's revenue life, which is theatrical. That's what we cover. There are so many ancillary revenue sources that can add up and really say the final word on if a film is successful or not. Well, that's a great point because, you know, when we're part of this, And I'm certainly part of it because back in the 90s, it was all about opening weekend. That's all anybody cared about. That fixation on opening weekend, no matter how much we all as an industry and others try to say, it's not about that. It's about the long-term playability and where the film is at three weeks in, which is actually true. Look at Elemental. Elemental was kind of written off right away. And globally, it's actually a, a great performing film. So it's just, again, because all the marketing eggs are generally put in that opening weekend basket, we all kind of focus on that. And I like what you said earlier about giving context because context is key. Because calling a film a flop in its opening weekend, I have a great example. So when Barbie and Oppenheimer opened on that weekend, some were positioning Oppenheimer as the loser because it came in second to Barbie. That was the the such a completely misguided way to characterize that. Both films won that weekend. Obviously, one film was going to be number one, which was Barbie, and, and Oppenheimer was number two. But they both absolutely won the weekend. That's another situation where how things are characterized often are is what people hang their hat on and then that becomes the legacy of that movie when if you go back later and you look at both both films or even just after that weekend both barbie and oppenheimer were winners that weekend and continue to be i mean look you can't judge a movie in the first three days you have to judge it in the first after the first three weeks and i i just i dislike big pronouncement now To be fair, there are some movies, if they really don't do well on opening weekend, there may be no recovery. You know, there may be no coming back from that. But some movies just hang in there and just surprise you after a while. And again, profitability, though, that's another thing. I think for studios, it really is about that. I mean, it's about keeping the costs in line. But how do you do that with a big action franchise, superhero franchise? They're kind of stuck with having to, in a sense, having to pour a lot of money into those films So, you know, you could have a movie that makes half a billion worldwide and still is not profitable. Although after ancillaries and all that, they may be, you're correct on what you said earlier about that. But that's what makes it interesting. And guess what? 
When you have ups and downs and dare I say hits and flops, even though I hate using that, you know what that means, Daniel? It means we're in a normalized or a normal marketplace. That's what always has earmarked the box office is that roller coaster ride, the unpredictability, the sleeper hits, the unpredictable films, the films that did better than expected, the Barbenheimer phenomenon that comes out of nowhere seemingly and takes the world by storm. But at the end of the day, no matter what's going on with the industry internally, we know from the way that people, the movie lovers out there have reacted over the past three years, particularly, is that they loved going to the movie theaters before the pandemic struck, during went to the drive-in. As we were coming out of that, there were a lot of films even in the midst of the pandemic that did incredibly well. And I know that when the pandemic, and I don't want to stay on the pandemic too long because that's in the past, but I mean, well, the way it affected the industry. But certainly a lot of people thought that that would accelerate the inevitable demise of the movie theater. And I think what it did, it bolstered and enhanced the love that people have for the movie theater. Because once that was off off the books, when you couldn't go to a movie theater, people really missed it, myself included. So as the industry has come back, I mean, we had that $4 billion domestic summer this year. I don't think anyone thought we would get there. I mean, I did. I went out there on a limb, but, you know, we barely got there. But we got there over Labor Day weekend. The Equalizer Friday put us over the top into $4 billion territory. Well, I think we, we can see that with a post-pandemic recovery. Yes, we can talk about how we're 25% behind in ticket sales revenue than we were pre-pandemic. Of course, we can have that conversation. The second sentence in that conversation is with 50% less movies in release. You have to include the second part of that conversation. So I don't mind the headlines that say, hey, oh my God, the box office hasn't recovered after the pandemic. 25% behind. Okay, yes, that's a, that's factually correct. Say that's the part context. about how there are 50% less titles in the market to make up that ground. And I think that's where the industry is. And with that pipeline question mark that we have looking into the end of this year, the beginning of next year, with uh, labor disputes uh, going on right now, I think that's a concern. And, and like you, I think we're all eager to see this resolved. Uh, the way this industry hits its heights is when everybody finds a way to work together. There are so many different touch points here. You, that you just said it because Barbie and Oppenheimer happened because everything at that point was firing on all cylinders from the writing to the acting to the marketing, to the distribution, and then the movie theater exhibition. That's, you get Barbenheimer when everything is operating in sync. And, you know, many people have said famously that we all have kitchens in our homes, but we, and, and I can make a drink at home anytime, but I'd rather go to a, a bar or a restaurant, pay four times what it would cost me to eat at home, because I want to go outside of the house. I want to be with other people. And, the, the halo effect that the movie theater has on all those businesses, from rideshare to local pubs to local restaurants, bookstores, you name it. I mean, the movie theater is the anchor not only for our, uh, you know, our culture, but it's, it's just an anchor. It's something that we – it's part of us. It's baked into our DNA. I mean, anyone you talk to about what you do or what I do, Daniel, they instantly feel a connection, even if they're not box office people – if they're movie people, and like we are, we can switch from just talking about the, the box office part of it to the movie side of it and the debates and the passion that happen in those debates over movies and filmmakers is just classic. And it's so and it's really positive at the end of the day. And we're, we're both very fortunate to be a part of an industry where, again, I don't make movies and I talk about them. I don't I don't distribute or market them, but I talk about that. But I have the utmost respect for those who do. It's just like many people are music critics who can't play a lick on a guitar or anything. That's fine. You could be a great analyst of things you don't practice yourself. That's what we're here for, but you have to have respect for it. I don't know. It's just been a, a great ride. I never plan to retire. I'm just going to say it for the, I, the Al Shapiro award is just a, it's an honor and it's, I will, I covet it and I'm, I'm honored and, but I'm going to keep on going till they give me the Paul get out of town award. Like we've had it. You're, it's time for you to go, pal. You've been in this 50 years or whatever. You have to show up to Bangkok to get that. It's in Asia. That's, that's, <laughs> when you get the Cine Asia invite from Andrew Sunshine, just know what that means. That's, All I right. don't know. You didn't get that memo? That's, yeah. We not give that yet. Out in December. Not yet. And I, All right. I'm just, so grateful. I'm giving you the warning right now. Yeah. <laughs> 
I'm so grateful to the Sunshines for this and to Show East. And uh, really, I didn't expect it. And uh, I'd like to thank the Academy. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it is. I look forward to seeing everyone there. It's going to be great. So I love Show East. I, I've been going to that for years and decades, really, since the 90s. Yeah, that's the, what the Atlantic City days. Then it went down to uh, Hollywood, or Orlando for a bit, then Hollywood, Florida, and now finally down in Miami. Well, that is happening this week here on the Box Office Podcast. You can find out more information on Show East and our website, boxofficepro.com. And you can hear more from Paul on the on his own podcast coming out from Comscore. You do that with our good friend and colleague, Mike Polidoros. When, when do you guys come out with new episodes? We on do that? that every two weeks. Every other Monday, Mike Polidoris uh, from Paper Airplane Media and I, we co-host a, uh, a podcast kind of wrapping up the weekend and looking ahead and it's never scripted, kind of like us. We just, we just go, man. I love this. I, I don't like scripted stuff. So, you know, some, and plus there's the beauty of editing, Daniel. So no, really, I pre- yeah, ticket to ride. And then I have my, another podcast where I interview filmmakers. I do maybe want that once a month or once every other month where I interview filmmakers. That's my Comscore Many Screens Big Picture podcast. But the Comscore Ticket to Ride podcast is the one that we do every other week. Well, that's where you can find Paul. Or you can just open, what, any newspaper on a Monday morning (laughs) or on a Sunday afternoon. You'll find his name. Paul Dugarbedian, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you. And thanks to Box Office and everything you guys do over there. I admire your work and we're in this together, man. So it's a unique spot that we have. And I know like such as yourself and like you do, I'm so grateful to this industry. It's just a great industry to be a part of. Thanks again to Russ Fisher, Sean Robbins, and Paul DeGarbedian of Comscore. And to this week's podcast sponsor, Cineonic. The Box Office Podcast is produced by The Box Office Company, Box Office Pro, and Record Edit Podcast. New episodes are available every Thursday, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and check back next week.